Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Enduring to the End. When the Christian community is hit with the news that a respected Christian leader has fallen morally, the enemy rushes in with all sorts of lies to undermine our faith and hope in Jesus. But our salvation rests in no mere man. It rests in Christ alone. He is able to keep us from falling, and we don't need to believe the lie that failure is an inevitability because we are hid in the one who, get this, can never fail. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. There's one moment in my life that, for whatever reason, stung me at a very deep level and just sort of embedded itself in my memory. And there's certain things that trigger this memory. And one of them was this past week. But the, the mental picture was, was on the front of, I think, the Denver Post but it was a news person or a journalist, I don't know who it was, I think it was a lady that stopped a car, and in this car was a pastor. His name was Pastor Ted Haggard, and he was in the driver's seat. His wife was in the passenger's seat, and I want to say that he either had one or two children in the back seat. I don't remember that clearly. And I remember the journalist or the reporter stopped them. They stopped, stuck a microphone into the car, and said, Is it true, Pastor Haggard? that you have been cheating on your wife, and is it true that you are addicted to methamphetamines? And he denied it, but it was true. And in front of all the world, he was humiliated. His wife had to sit there with a microphone across the front of her body, and his children had to be in the picture. I mean, the, the level of indecency in it was off the charts, of dishonor, but at the same time, This is what the world will do with those that live a hypocritical life and choose to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ and live in a contrary fashion. One of the greatest burdens in my soul when I first gave my life to Jesus and I said, I will follow you. This is in the days of uh, Jimmy Swaggart's failure. This is in the days of Jim Baker. And this is right when Eric Ludi is popping out of the spiritual womb. I had seen such disgrace brought to the name of Jesus, and yet I was a believer. And I remember talking with God, saying, God, does every man have to fail you? Is it possible to go the distance? Is it possible to actually live throughout my entire life and not bring disgrace to your name? Because if not, I don't even want to try. Obviously, I started on the journey, but when I see these scenes, they have a, an impact upon me in a very high level, and this past week, I went through a very similar thing, and some of you may understand why, but I, I gave a message, I don't know when it was, a year, year and a half ago, two years, it was called, When a Pastor Lives a Double Life. And that was another significant blow that the Church of Jesus Christ had faced. And today's Orphan Sunday, and one of my greatest passions is rescuing the weak. And here's what I'm going to say to you as a church. Stand up for the orphan. But today, that's not what my message is about. I feel it's very imperative that as a Church of Jesus Christ, we are freshly reminded of our position in Christ 
And we know that the God who has called us is also able to do it. And he does not set us up for moral failure. He does not set us up to be a disgrace to his name. This is not a work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God brings triumph to the saints of God and brings a picture of the glory of God and reveals the manifold wisdom of God unto the heavenlies. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. Enduring to the end. Matthew 24, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. This is in the context of speaking about the last days. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And I made this big so that we would not miss it. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. It is an awkward scripture, and I recognize that, because it puts a condition or something in the mix It's like, well, though others may be going cold in their faith, it's those that endure to the end that shall be saved. How does this work? What does that mean? Well, let's walk through this principle of, first of all, do you even believe that one can endure to the end? Do you believe that a Christian man or woman actually can prevail over sin? Or that they are always under the thumb of it. And it's just a matter of time. And in the right moment, it will be exposed that all of us are frauds. And that's the message of the modern Christian church, unfortunately. Is basically, we all have a creative cover-up for our weakness. Some are better at it than others. But every single one of us is crammed full of iniquity. Well, here's what I would say. Yes, that's where we all begin. And every single one of us needs a savior. But if you turn to that Savior, that Savior is known as a Savior for a purpose. He saves us from our sin. The moral failure of our leaders. Uh, I've gone back and forth of if I should even say the name, but I don't want to distract you guys for the rest of the sermon of you guys trying to think through who it would have been. Many of you that are from the conservative side of things know Doug Phillips and know what has taken place this past week. Doug was actually a mentor of mine uh, with constitutional law. He used to be a constitutional lawyer. And I have a very uh, high affinity for him, a very high respect and honor. We may not have agreed on every little doctrinal point, but I've always had a very, very high regard for him. And this week, he reported that there has been a serious sin in my life. I engaged in a lengthy, inappropriate relationship with a woman. There are no words to describe the magnitude of shame I feel or grief from the injury I caused my beloved bride and children. I thought too highly of myself and behaved without proper accountability. I have acted grievously before the Lord in a destructive manner, hypocritical of life, messages I hold dear, inappropriate for a leader, abusive of the trust that I was given, and hurtful to family and friends. You know, I feel like he handled it well. He has owned up to it. He did not self-justify. But the impact and the devastating effect upon the church is still felt. Upon his wife, upon his children, upon those that have esteemed him and followed him, it has a very, very damaging effect. And there's a great weight, I think, that many of us feel uh, in our souls when we walk through these things. And one of the key questions is what I want to address. Why is it that all the strong men and women seem to fail? Does that mean there isn't such a thing as strength? I want to hit this on the head. 
because we need to know in whom we have believed. And we need to know that our confidence does not rest in men. Our confidence rests in Jesus Christ. The prayer of the young gospel tier. I don't know if you can relate with this, but here's the prayer from many, many years ago from Eric Ludy. Lord, is it possible to go the distance with integrity without a fatal stumble or without disgracing your almighty name? Must every Christian leader fail? Must every Christian leader have a private life of sin and deceit? Must every Christian leader run after his secretary? Lord, is it possible that a man might be built by God in such a way that though he be made of earthly clay, he is empowered to walk out the impossible life with constancy and excellence? Is it possible that though a man be fallible, his life may prove a living epistle? God, if it be possible, do it in me and through me. For I fear one thing, and I know I should fear nothing but you, but I fear tarnishing your glory. I fear disgracing your reputation. The syrupy words of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This came from something that Sandy had shared with someone this week, and I think it's, it's worth repeating to us today. And that is, at the tree in the Garden uh, of Eden, there is this serpent that, as I remember Hudson, he drew a picture of it once, and the serpent was hanging from the tree. And he was speaking to Eve, and he was saying, surely you will not die. What did Eve say? She said the word of God. She said, well, God said that the day in which we eat it, we will surely die. You see, God's word spoke. And then came the serpent's voice. You shall surely not die. So now we have another tree. It's the tree of life. It's the tree at Calvary. It's the tree upon which a new form of fruit hangs. Unless you eat of that fruit that hangs from this tree of life, known as the cross, you can have no life in you. And God's promise now is, eat and you will live. And what does the enemy say? Surely you shall not live. Isn't that interesting? He's always bad-mouthing the word of God. He's always contradicting it. So let's apply that here. You see, every single one of us wants to go the distance. There isn't one of us here that is being born anew in Christ Jesus that longs to disgrace his name. However, what is the whisper of the the syrupy words of the serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does he say? If you put your confidence in Jesus, you will not be able to stand. I can knock you over at any point. Any point I choose, I can bring you down. You are under my thumb. If you put your trust in him to keep you, you will surely still fail. If you place your faith in his power to do it, you will surely still compromise. Do you believe it? Are you going to listen to the devil? In the very first session we have here at Ellerslie, we stick two pedestals up on stage. One over here has an apple on it. The other one over here has the word of God on it. This one is a slick attorney. knows the flesh, but it's also just the devil. It's the voice that is constantly whispering to discredit the word of God. God has spoken. What God says, we believe. What doubt is, is turning your back on the word of God and heeding the word of the serpent. That's what doubt is. And most of us think that we're just a victim to doubt. It's like, well, I can't help it. Everyone doubts. No. 
You are called to believe, and to believe means to turn your back on the devil. Turn your back. You can say, well, that's not fair-minded. That's not being open-minded. What if he has some good stuff to say? He doesn't. He has nothing good to say. And though it may seem and appear closed-minded and narrow-minded, what you are being is what's called canon-minded. You are gospel-minded. God is truth. Let everything that opposes him be considered a lie. Because everything that opposes him is a lie. He's truth. You know what that means? Without lie. There is no lie in him. And so when you turn to truth, you're not being lied to. You're being told the truth. You heed the truth. What God says, you believe. And that's very important in this message. Because there's a syrupy voice that is saying, but you cannot stand. The word of God says, but I will keep you from falling. And what does this voice say? But he can't keep you from falling. I will get to you. You choose which one you're going to listen to. Because this week we have fresh bait in our souls to say, yep, every man that stands for virtue, every man that stands for purity, every man that stands for family honor, every man that stands for protecting his home, all of those guys are false. The word of God is true. Don't put your confidence in men. Today I don't ask you to look at me, I ask you to look at the word of God. That's what we heed. That's what we follow. And if everyone around us melts away in the day of testing and fails, the word of God is still faithful. He cannot lie. He is truth. Going the way of the dodo. When this harkens back to a message I gave quite a few years ago called Majesty Lost and an opening banquet night, we talk about extinct animals And Hudson and I were studying extinct animals. And one of the classic extinct animals, if not the most famous extinct animal, is the dodo bird. And so the phrase is going the way of the dodo, which means going the way of extinction. And so this is a concept that I want to build on really quick. Because the dodo bird, I studied the dodo bird this week. Fascinating study. First of all, the dodo bird was discovered by Vice Admiral Wybrand Van Horjik. In 1598, on the island of Mauritius, one dodo was killed, cooked, and eaten. So they went to this island. It's like, huh, what's this? It was like this three-foot-tall bird, pretty big bird. And so they killed it, cooked it, and ate it. It was found to be very good meat. So with no instinct to fight, no capacity for self-protection, the dodo had been found out, by the way. Suddenly, the dodo, which was on this obscure island, which no one had ever found, suddenly got discovered. And he was living all fine, as long as there were no predators on the island. But in 1598, the Dutch arrived and found him to be good meat. So, with no instinct to fight and no capacity for self-protection, the dodo, when faced with this newfound predatorial threat, had no resistance. It could not survive long. It would be destroyed. It had no choice but to go extinct. The poor guy, he was good meat. (laughs) And sure enough, the dodo bird was extinct within 64 years. Isn't that amazing? It's the fastest any animal in all of history has gone extinct. Of course, there could have been previous animals before this time that has been recorded. But it's a weak animal that is unable to protect itself. And guess what? It was good meat. And as a result, the dodo went the way of the dodo. It went extinct. A bad combination, being very good meat and pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. (laughs) Okay, I'm setting you up for something here, by the way. I'm saying it's a bad combination. 
And I don't think you recognize yet this is all going to turn on us. We are a bad combination. The myth of the Christian dodo. See, there's a myth that says that all of us are as the dodo. And the way the dodo goes, so will we go. You see, the dodo has a problem. The dodo is vulnerable. The dodo, at any time the Dutch show up again, and our admirable, shows up, and we're good meat, that dodo is going to be cooked. Okay? So every Christian, like the dodo, will eventually fall to the predator. Now, I don't know what version of Christianity you've grown up in, but very likely you've heard the myth. Every Christian will go the way of the dodo. Every one of us will fall to the predator. And we can say, but I'm a Christian. Yeah, well, what's that change? Have you ever looked around you? Look at all the leaders. Can you name one leader that didn't go the way of the dodo? And we're like, uh, that's a good point. I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Well, that would be our supporting scripture, wouldn't it? Well, thanks a lot, God. You're the one sending us out amongst the wolves. However, the context for this and the rest of the Bible does not support going the way of the dodo. Going the way of the lamb is very different than going the way of the dodo. And I'm going to explain the difference. Lambs, like dodo birds, are very good meat. And like dodo birds, are pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. I didn't come up with that, by the way. That's the description of just a lamb of any scientific study. Okay, these poor things, these poor creatures, are good meat. That doesn't help. But they're also pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. And God says, oh, you're my precious little lambs. Huh? I don't know that I want to be a lamb. Christians, a.k.a. lambs, little lambs, like dodos, have no instinct to fight. This is the myth, by the way. I'm just reading you something. I'm not giving you fact. I'm giving you myth. Christians, a.k.a. little lambs, like dodos, have no instinct to fight and no capacity for overcoming sin in the flesh. When faced with demonic enticements and fleshly baits, they have no ability to resist. Therefore, they cannot survive long. They will be destroyed. They have no choice but to fall, to blunder, to make a disgrace of the name Christian. Hey, they're lambs. What do you expect from them? They're good meat, and they're pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. God's the one calling us lambs. He obviously knows that. Let's just accept our lot in life. If God didn't want us to be lambs, he could have made us something different. Wild stallions, roaring lions, hungry bears. Instead, we're little lambs. Hey, God understands that. That's the way he made us. Oh, Lord, are lambs and dodos really the same? Is failure inevitable? So I put the truth in blue. We had to change the background here because the blue wouldn't show up on the dark background. And the lies is in red. So let's first go through the truth. Lambs like dodo birds are very good meat, and like dodo birds are pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. Let's just admit it. That's true. However, there's a lie. And the lie is this. Christians, a.k.a. little lambs, like dodos, have no instinct to fight. That's not true. There is an instinct to fight. It's given us by the Spirit of God. We do not just lay down and stretch out our neck to what the enemy wants to do. We lay down and stretch our neck to what our shepherd wants us to do. But we do have a fight. And we do know to run from the predators. And no capacity for overcoming sin in the flesh. That's true in and of ourselves. However, we are not left to our own devices. We are not left to our own strength. Yes, we are fluffy, weak creatures. But do you know who watches over us? 
We have something known as grace. And that grace is sufficient for every need we will ever have in life. When faced with demonic enticements and fleshly baits, they have no ability to resist. That's ridiculous. Have you ever read the gospel? We actually have, not in and of ourselves, not native to ourselves, but native to Jesus Christ, the one in whom we find refuge. We have the grace of God to overcome. Therefore, they cannot survive long. They will be destroyed. They have no choice but to fall, to blunder, and to make a disgrace of the Christian name. I want to say something that sounds like an old-fashioned statement. Phooey. <laughs> that is not true. That is a lie. And the enemy says, surely you cannot stand. Surely you will fail. The Word of God says something far different. Let's turn to the Word of God today, this morning. Let's meditate upon what God says. I know what the enemy says, and I know what your experience says, and I know what the experience of the Christian leaders around us in our lifetime have stated. And we want to see a different statement made today. The key difference between the lamb and the dodo, this is not not a small difference. The lamb has a shepherd. The dodo was found out to be good meat and pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. Poor guy, 64 years later, he was a dead cooked goose. I think he's technically a chicken. Uh, a dead cooked chicken. However, you, though you be a lamb, and though that be true, and though you are, I'm included, pathetically weak, dumb, and slow, and we have no ability in and of ourselves to handle and to stave off the predators. The wolves want us, they eat us. The bears want us, the lions want us. We're cooked. However, Not if we're at the ankle of our shepherd. If we rest in the shadow of our shepherd, everything changes. 2,000 years ago, the lambs, the brigade of lambs, the mighty brigade of lambs began, known as the Church of Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, we still stand. There's no extinction of the lambs. Though we bear the same markings as the dodo, the dodo had no protector. We do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This is the lamb walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And what does the lamb declare? I will fear no evil. Well, doesn't the lamb know that he's good meat? And that he's pathetically weak, dumb, and slow? Didn't anyone inform the lamb? No, the lamb has a shepherd. Didn't you read line one? The Lord is my shepherd. The I am is my shepherd. You know who watches over me? The one who created everything. Bring your best world. I'm not food for you. You're a lamb. A lamb in the flock of the most high God. The growl for the real thing. So let's go back in time here. The kid who dreamed of living an impossible life. Yep, that's me. I'm the kid that looked at scripture and said, you know what? But this is what it says. It says that I can live triumphant. It says that I can have a love even when I'm spat upon. And even when I'm struck on one cheek, I can turn to them the other also. It says that I can have a joy that is like a Cheerio in milk. And when you're pressed down, bloop, you immediately go back up to the surface. No matter how many times they press you under the milk, bloop, you go right back to the surface. You're unsinkable. 
It says that there's a peace that passes all understanding. It says that there's a triumph and a victory over sin that I'm supposed to let not sin therefore reign in my mortal body that I would obey it in the lust thereof. That's what I want. But, but Eric, you, you can't have that. No, no Christian actually has that. No, no, that's hyperbole. That isn't actually the way you're supposed to live. That's the way Jesus lived. But we just sort of stare at Jesus and go, wow, you're incredible. But we actually don't live it. Well, then why does he tell us to? Why does he tell us to do these things? Why does he command us to do them? Well, Eric, you know, you just don't understand. When you mature, you'll finally come to grips with the fact that you can't actually live this life. I refuse to accept that. However, it doesn't mean I had power to live it. Guess who was still a failure? Guess who would still prove to be the dodo day in and day out? Yeah, that's me. However, I was a dodo with a desire to not be a dodo. In a sense, I was a dodo that desired to be a lamb. I desired a a protector, a shepherd. I just didn't know how it all worked. So then, the kid who believed, but didn't know how to resist. And that's, that's what you grow up into. You start with a dream of the impossible life, and then you actually turn to Jesus and say, I want it. I believe you can give it to me, but you don't quite know how to say no to the devil when the enticements come. And so instead of living with your back to the devil's enticements and your eyes fixed on the word of God, you stand sort of like this. You're like, God, I hear what you're saying, but this is making such a good point. I don't know how to say no to that. And so maybe you're not with your back to God, but you're like sideways. And as a result, you keep failing. You keep stumbling because you have an open ear to the devil's enticements. Have you looked at this apple? You're like, huh, wow, that is a nice apple. And what does the devil do from there? He only magnifies the value of that apple to your soul. And the more you think about it, the more you find yourself way over here with an apple juice streaming down your chin. How did I get back to that spot? God, I told you I would never leave you or forsake you. He says, that's what I told you, Eric. You don't have the strength, the wherewithal. Did you know you're a lamb? For you to make bold declarations of never leaving or forsaking God without understanding that you can't do that? What's what we oftentimes do? At the very beginning of Ellerslie this semester, I said, let's be watchful not to make bold declarations like Peter. I will never do this. I will always do this. We're weak. There is one who will never leave. There is one who will never forsake. And that's not you. We are very fallible. We are prone to wander. The secret to a Christian is to put your confidence in the one that will not fail, which is not you. Do not put your confidence in your own ability the way Peter did. I grit my teeth, Jesus, and I will not deny you. Don't just grit your teeth and tell God you will not deny him. You turn humbly unto your Savior and you say, I would deny you if I didn't have you. I would be eaten by the wolves if I don't have you. My confidence rests in my Savior. Save me! So, the kid who believed but didn't know how to resist. For the men in here that have gone through this process of saying, God, I want to live for you. But then you get that enticement and that bait. And then you find yourself back at that pile of vomit that you've always declared, I will never go back to that. Yeah, I went through that. I hated it. It was miserable. And whatever sin that you've struggled with, a lot of us still find ourselves there. That's the church of today. The kid who learned the secret of godliness. Well, it's a long story in my life. 
but I actually learned the secret of godliness. It's called the exchange. I give up my life in exchange for his. And no longer do I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And you know what? I learned how to turn my back on that bait. Does that mean the voice isn't still calling? Does that mean the enticements go away? No. No, but I've learned how to turn and focus on Jesus and to find a strength in the midst of temptation, to learn how to flee temptation. I remember one critical moment in my life, and I think I shared this with the guys the other day, and I don't know that I've ever shared it in church. It's sort of an awkward story to share in church, but I'll try it anyways. I don't remember all the details of it, but I remember the feeling of it very intensely, and I remember the effects of it very intensely. There were certain moments where I was baited and I would fail, even after I'd made resolution that I would not crumble again, that this next time I'm going to rise up and be strong. And I finally came to the end of confidence in me. I can't do it. And when you come to the end of yourself, you're extremely vulnerable to forsaking all things godly. I can't do it. I can't do it. However, if you come to the end of you, you're at the most ripe place to be rescued by Jesus Christ. However, you're also at the most ripe place to leave Jesus Christ wholly and completely. I can't do it! God, I'm sick and tired of your commands, which are asking me to do something I can't do. That's the bad attitude. Instead of like, God, I can't do it. I need you to do it for me. That's the secret of godliness. I can't. But you can. And he goes, bingo. So... I need to stop trying, and I need to let you have my life. Bingo. So I need to die and let you enter so that these hands are no longer my hands. They're your hands. These eyes are no longer my eyes. They're your eyes. That I become the body of Christ, and I function with you living inside of me. He goes, that's right. And everything begins to change. However... Whereas a lot of Ellerslie students, it's exactly where you're at right now. That's just the beginning. The man who learned to go the distance. I'm not saying that's me. I'm saying that's the heart cry of Eric Ludy. I have a lot lot of life left. What am I, 42? I'm asking you. (laughs) 42? Uh, maybe close to the halfway point in my life, not that I'm expecting to keel over at 84. But I'm at the halfway point. And I need to learn to go the distance. So there was a, I was in my bedroom, and I remember there was some type of tantalizing temptation, of some sort, it was downstairs. And I remember in the middle of the night I couldn't sleep, and there was some type of tantalizing temptation, and I knew where it was. And so I remember I got up, and I remember even thinking to myself, no, I shouldn't, but I need to. Ever felt that real weird compulsion? You keep moving towards sin because you feel like you don't have much of a choice, and your mind is reasoning through it saying, but God understands, or but God will forgive. I mean, he's a forgiving God, and he, he, he gives grace for these things. Every other time I've ever asked for forgiveness. But then it's like, no, I said I was not going to do this again. And it's like your sanity begins to melt away. Sort of like a hot torch on a candle. Just, that's your sanity. And you can't think straight. You can't reason straight. 
But what I did in this situation was very unique. Remember, I stopped at the top of the stairs and put my hands on the banister and the stairwell down to my destruction. And I called out to God. I stopped and I said, God, I can't stop this. I am weak. And I'm going to do the same old thing I've always done. But today I'm stopping and I'm saying, I need your intervention. I need what you promise. You have something I need. I don't know if that's what grace exactly is, but that's what I think I need. I need your power in this situation to overcome instead of looking to myself. Because I'm just going to be honest. I can't stop this. I am weak. There's nothing inside of me that can say no. But at the same time, there is a spirit man within me that is crying out and saying, Yes, Lord. Come and help me, Lord Jesus. And I remember I stood there. I don't know how long it was. It could have been an hour. And I said, God, I need grace. And God gave me grace that night. And guess who didn't go down those stairs? I didn't. I didn't go down the stairs. And I remember that night, it was the very first inclination that God gives grace in time of need when we ask And there was a shift in my life, even though no one in my life had ever told me that that was possible. No one in my life ever said that there was victory. Oh, they would read scriptures about it, don't get me wrong, but there was always this license to sin. Eric, when you sin, then God will just pour out his grace on you. What about before you sin and when you're being tempted, he will give you grace? Anyone ever tell us that? Because that's grace for help in time of need, and that time of need is not just when you're blemished. But it's when you're being tempted to be blemished. Praise God that he gives us grace when we're blemished. But what the church of Jesus Christ needs is not just more of that. We need an increase of understanding that the grace of God is available to us at the top of the banister, at the top of the stairs. When we have a yearning and a pulling downward, when that voice is baiting us and that fruit, we can even smell it in the air. We can even hear the serpent crunching into it with his teeth. We're like, oh, that would be really good. You say, no. God, you are my life. You are my source. You are my satisfaction. I have pleasures forevermore in you at your right hand. I will not turn. But by his grace, you live. The man who learned to go the distance. Who's that? Have we met him? Have we ever met this guy? who has actually gone the distance as a Christian, triumphant the entire time, a picture under the saints of God to say, that's what a godly man looks like. That's a godly marriage. That's how to raise your kids the right way. Not just a man who speaks the right verbiage, but a man who lives the right life, and not just for one year of his life, but for the entirety of it when he came to Christ. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's what I want. I'm not going to say that's what I am because I'm halfway through my life. i got a life to live. And all I know is that the great men that have gone before me, there's been many of them that have failed. And yet today I want to meditate upon those that didn't fail. Because that's what we need in a time like this. We need a little faith. We need encouragement. We do not need more dismal failures. The three great promises of the shepherds. Let's emphasize three great statements out of the Word of God. So if we had the two pedestals up here, this pedestal has the Word of God on it, and it is going to proclaim three very specific promises. And when God promises, He cannot lie. 
And so when God says it, you can take it to the bank. It's trustworthy. He is faithful and true. He cannot lie. He cannot break his promises. He's God. He is. And so when he speaks, he means it. So let's look at what he speaks. He will keep the feet of his saints. He is the keeper. Now, you probably need to have a separate study just on keeping. This word keep is extraordinary. But he, Jesus Christ, our almighty God, is the keeper. And when we entrust ourselves to him, what does he promise to do? I'll keep you. I'll keep that which is entrusted to me. You entrust yourself to me, and I'm very good at keeping. He is the keeper. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. By your own strength you will not prevail. But I know someone who can keep the feet of his saints. And that someone is the keeper. That someone is Jesus Christ. When you turn your life over to him, he will keep the feet of, your, of his saints. Why, do you, why does it matter that he will keep your feet? Because what a stumble is, is someone whose feet are not kept. They begin to walk in a path of the ungodly. And when you walk in the path of the ungodly, you trip. There's a lot of stones along that way, because the whole goal of the ungodly path is to get you on your face, wallowing in the mire. God's path, the way of life, which is Jesus Christ, is a way without stumbling stone. It is kept by Jesus Christ himself. He is the path. He is the keeper of the path. He is the one who made the path, and he's the one who helps you get down the path. He's the, he's the governor of the path. And he helps you walk the path. And he will keep the feet of his saints along it. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. Oh, that sounds very similar, doesn't it? He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Could you imagine? He's your keeper, but then he goes to sleep for a little while while you're walking. It's like, pfft. No, that isn't what happens. You see, the one who's keeping your feet will never snooze. He always watches over you. So he doesn't just keep your, your feet for a little season of your life and then, oh, no, he fell asleep right when you were needing him most. He went to sleep. No, no, he will not slumber. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Proverbs 3. I was listening to Proverbs 3. just happened to be on our, intercom, or our speaker system this morning. And uh, the context for this is quite profound, even in light of what we were talking about earlier of what happened this week in Christianity. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. In other words, he's a big God. This is in the context of wisdom. The things that truly you hold on to with your life. It says, my son, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So if you are keeping the gift of grace that you've been given, if you turn to Jesus Christ and you keep a firm grip on that cross work, on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, so shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then thou shalt walk in thy way safely. So here's this way again that we're supposed to be walking in. This is a promise. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou lies down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord shall be thy confidence, and shall keep thy foot 
from being taken. Who do you trust in? You see, there's a lot of testimonies, a lot of experience in this life, and it's hollering at you. But what about this guy? Well, then this guy stood strong for truth, but look what happened to him. That's none of your business. You want to tell you what your business is, is to believe in the word of God. A lot of us are always like, but, but, but. No, 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 no. Turn your back on that. You place your confidence here. We can't answer for what goes on in other people's souls. We don't know what they're doing. They could have been play acting the entire time. I don't know. It's not my business. It's not my jurisdiction to judge it. All I see is fruit, and I can say that's, well, that's not what it says in the Word of God. This is what it says in the Word of God. This is what I believe. He will keep my foot from stumbling. He is my keeper. That is what I believe. Number two, the second big promise. He will finish the work that he began. So God is not a God of miscarriage and abortion. He doesn't start life and then cease it partway along. What it says of our God is that he starts a work and then brings it to completion. That's what it says. I didn't come up with it. This is just the description of God, by God himself. And so the term in scripture is he is the perfecter, which means he brings things to completion. He brings things to perfection. You will notice the term in these these scriptures. He saves us to the uttermost, to the point of utter completion. That's how he saves us. He doesn't just save us part way and say, ah, that's good enough, and then leave us vulnerable. He doesn't like grow a lamb up to a certain age and go, you know what, you're on your own now, little bucko. No, he saves that sheep to the uttermost, to the fullness of their life, to the end of their days. There's no time in there where he's like, oh, I'm not your savior now. Didn't you read scripture? There's always a gap of time where I leave you vulnerable to the wolves. No, he is the keeper and he saves us to the uttermost. Every degree in between, the entire kit and caboodle, the entire way through, he is the perfecter of the saints. So what it says in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the word finisher could also be translated perfecter. He is the beginning of our faith. He's the one that sprouts it and starts it. And he's the one that perfects it. He's the perfecter. He's the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who perfects your faith is sitting in the highest seat of authority. You know what? That's the one you want on your side. And guess what? If you keep your back turned to this, that's who is on your side. Look, uh, a perfecter, (laughs) I need some perfecting. I have a lot of things that are trying to woo me over here, but I look to you, and you are the perfecter. You are the one who will save me to the uttermost. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Who, Who will he save? Those that come unto God by him. So if you come unto God by Jesus Christ, he is able and will save you to the uttermost. There will be no discrepancy in the saving. Every gradient along the way, there will be no little season where God turns you over to the wolves and says, it'll be good for them. A little season for them to, you know, soil their oats. You know, that's what we need. No, it isn't. That isn't how God saves his sheep. God saves his sheep by being an ever-present, non-slumbering shepherd. Always watching over them. A sheep could wander, could neglect the shepherd's shadow, and could say, you know what? 
I'm just interested in what's going on out here. And I don't care what the advice is of the shepherd. I'm not going to heed the word that says, stay in my shadow and you will be safe. And a sheep can wander and can be devoured. However, when that sheep pays heed to the word of God and remains in the shelter of the Most High, he will be preserved. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it or will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is always perfecting his work. Always. And the third promise. Those that put their confidence in God will not be put to shame. See, there's this concept floating around Christianity where, well, you see, God doesn't always have to do what you think he's going to do. Sometimes he just does different things, and we don't understand why he does it. No, he will always abide by his word. He will never violate his word. He is faithful and true. Where's this notion come from? People call it the mystery. Well, there's just a mystery. We'll, we'll understand it in, in the heavenlies. And I understand what, they, what some of them are saying by that. In other words, we don't know everything this side of heaven. However, we do know something, what it says in the Word of God. And what it says in the Word of God cannot lie and is true. God doesn't violate it. So if something has happened in this earthen realm that seems to contradict it, like, for instance, Lazarus is uh, <clears throat> dead. Didn't Jesus say this sickness will not end in death? Uh, we've got a little contradiction floating around on planet Earth. What's your job as a believer? God said it. The sickness will not end in death. And then what's this voice saying? Uh, you know, it looks like we got a dead guy here. Yeah, you know what? One day, two days, three days, four days, Looney. It's about time you wake up and smell the coffee. Hey, buddy, this is when you should doubt your God. And what do you say? No, it's impossible for God to lie. I will not doubt my God. What he says goes. He is a truth-telling God. You're a liar. And what happens? Jesus comes strolling into town and makes it all clear. Lazarus, come forth! And the dead live. You see, God cannot lie. And yet there's a window of time in each of our lives where we have to make that choice. It's called the test of faith. You believe even though there's a lot of noise over here. We got a lot of Christian leaders that are failing, guys. What's your job? To turn around and say, but if they failed, I must be next. No. You believe the word of God. You believe the one who has spoken. You believe the one who has saved you and who is able to save you to the uttermost. You come unto the Father by him? All right. He promises he'll save you to the uttermost. He's your keeper. He's your perfecter. And he is the faithful and true. He will prove faithful. He will prove true. It's his name. And he is. He is the I am that I am, he says. That means he never alters. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And way back in the beginning, he was faithful and true. And that isn't altering today. Though the Christian world today is weak and wobbly need, and though the culture in which we live is anti-Christian, post-Christian, far away from Christianity, even the church itself that bears the name of Jesus is wallowing in defeat. It doesn't matter. Your job is to believe. Because he has not changed. His word is not altered. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what we believe in. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. 
When you believe in the record, when you believe in the word of God, do you know that there's no shame? There isn't a moment where the whole world just can mock you and say, yeah, God failed you and you have to admit you're, they're right. God, God did fail the Christians. God didn't come through. Wow, that's a lot of shame to bear. Nope, it'll never happen. Ever. When you put your confidence in Jesus, there is no being put to shame. He always will come through. You can say, what about those awkward moments like between the day that Lazarus dies and the fourth day? Yeah, that's called the test of faith. However, God still didn't fail. You see, there are little stretches where it may appear and where the noise on this side of the ledger is very loud. But as a Christian, you must know that we will not be put to shame. We will not. When we put our confidence in the living God, he will come through. So neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yes, I will help thee. Yes, I will uphold thee with my right hand of my righteousness. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Israel shall be saved. Where? In the Lord. With an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. I like that line. Just the end. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Through the rest of time, you will not be ashamed or confounded. And so for all of us that are like, well, that's a promise unto Israel. Don't you understand that you have been grafted in to Israel? Don't you understand that we have access into the inheritance of the saints in light? Don't you know that we are in Christ, who is the seed of Israel? He is the entire fullness. What is good about Israel is Jesus. And that's who came out of him. And I don't know where you stand, but I know that we as the body of Christ are supposed to be in him. We are in Israel. We are in Jesus. We are in the seed. We are in the Messiah. We have been grafted into his life. And therefore... We shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Uh, Turn our back on this. Noise. We believe. That's what we do. We're called believers. So I know it sounds sort of wimpy and lowly of a job description, but our great work when we go about the Father's business is to believe. You know what his work is? To do everything else. He's the all in all. He's the most high and holy one. We are... Good meat that are pathetically weak, slow, and dumb. Our job is to turn into the shepherd and believe. But I trust you. I trust you, shepherd, to lead me, to guide me, to protect me, to provide for me. Everything I could ever need, I will find from your hand. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. From the beginning to the end, world without end, he is faithful and he is true. That's where we place our confidence. Not in self, not our own ability. There isn't a point in my Christianity where suddenly it's like, you know what? I think I've got this moral strength thing down. I think I've conquered sin. I think I've overcome temptation. I don't need a savior. I can wander from the shepherd's shadow. I'll be fine. What happens the moment I do? I'm not fine. 
The principle of Christianity is to abide, is to remain. You see, we can't do it. He can. The secret to Christianity is to lean and to trust in the only one who can. Always. The shadow of the shepherd, we'll call it the place of the little lamb. A little lamb is good meat. It's pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. However, the little lamb has a shepherd. And that's something that all the other animals of this earth, I know that some other animals may have shepherdly type watch, but a lamb is a great picture, and that's why Jesus likens us to it. Because though we be weak and vulnerable in this earth, and that's just a fact, we are vulnerable. However, we are not vulnerable when we are in the shadow of the shepherd. A lamb is a vulnerable creature if it wanders. And if it goes outside the pale of the protection or rejects the protection of the shepherd, a lamb is vulnerable, and I'm not going to argue that fact. That's truth. However, it's not truth that every lamb must be eaten by wolves. That is not true. So let's just do a quick review of living in the shelter of the shepherd. I love this. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We could call him the shepherd. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. It's like a little lamb saying, yeah, the I am, that's my protection. That's my refuge and that's my fortress. But you're a little lamb. I I know, I know. But uh, you see the Lord here? He's my refuge and he's he's my fortress. That's what we say. My God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. There's a lot of noise from over here, a lot of dangers, a lot of threats. There are predators that are out to get you. However, there's promise. You're not just left vulnerable. You have promise, promise from the shepherd. He says, oh, little wee one, little fluffy one, little weak, pathetically weak one. I am your shepherd, and I watch over you. I will keep you. Stay right here. Stay right here and put your confidence. Believe in me. Believe in my ability to save. And we're like, okay. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. In fact, a thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand but it shall not come nigh thee. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Does that sound like something you say to a little lamb? Oh no, yeah, go out and trample upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the dragon, oh, yes, you'll trample them under your feet. You're like, I'm a lamb Mm -hmm, with a shepherd. You see, as we like to say here at Ellerslie, you're a fluffy little lamb with the face of a lion. You're weak, but in Christ Jesus and with Christ Jesus in you, you're anything but weak because he is your strength. In your weakness, his strength is made perfect. You see, you're weak, yes, but he's not weak, and he's your clothing, And he's the one who dwells inside of you and makes this the very body of Christ. And now there's a growl in the midst of a little fluffy sheep. 
So there's a key line in the middle of this which says, I have made the Lord my habitation. I have made the Lord. What's your position? Are you saying that you've made the Lord your habitation? You've made him your dwelling place. That is where you live. So that's the same statement as in Psalm 91. This is the context. Because I've made the Lord my habitation, this is all true. So here's, I'm going to read it in a different way to you. I have made the Lord my habitation. Or we could say, I'm in Christ. Therefore, he shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. I shall not be afraid of the terror by night. I shall not be afraid of the arrow that flies by day. I shall not be afraid of the pestilence that walks in darkness. I shall not be afraid of the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, but it shall not come near me. Leader after leader after leader could fall into compromise. Thousands, tens of thousands. But where's your confidence lie? You don't put your confidence in what's happening around you, in the world of men. You put your confidence in the word of God, in the promise, in the very presence of the, she- of the shepherd himself. There shall no evil befall me. No plague shall come near my dwelling. He shall give his angels charge over me to keep me in all my ways. The angels shall bear me up in their hands lest I dash my foot against a stone. There he is guarding feet again. I shall tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and dragon shall I trample under my feet. You see there's a contrast here. A stumble is when your feet are not held, when your feet are not protected, but you have a keeper of your feet. And so God doesn't just say, I'll guard your feet. But then what does he say? Instead of you tripping and falling, we're going to use these feet to crush heads. Think about it. These feet, instead of you flopping with them up in the air, instead anything along the way is going to be trampled. Your feet are not just held, but they turn into the device of destruction for the enemy. It's called being the body of Christ. That's what we expect. That's what we believe. We're Christians. I know we're little lambs that are good meat. And we're pathetically weak, dumb, and slow. But we have a shepherd. And that shepherd is not weak. He is not dumb and he's not slow. That shepherd is able. That shepherd has already accomplished That shepherd has crushed the head of all your enemies, and they can rise no more. I used this illustration the other day when Jacob, David, ran up to Goliath and cut off his head, lifts it up. I don't know how many of you are going to think that Goliath is going to rise again. Goliath is a dead man. His head has been severed from his body. He's dead, and he's just as dead today as he was dead then. And the head of the serpent has been crushed. He has no power over you. He cannot stop the agenda of God in your life. But you must learn the secret of being a little lamb. Going the way of the lamb. You see, that's a contrast with going the way of the dodo. We don't go the way of the dodo. I know we're very similar to dodos. But a dodo is in scripture what is known as a fool. A wise man is a dodo, yes with the dodo driven out of him by the word of God. And then he's called a lamb. In other words, we find our shepherd. A dodo is one that refuses the shepherd. They're a dodo, and rightfully named a dodo, and they will go extinct, and they will fall prey to the predator. And the wages of that behavior is death. There is a way that seems right unto a dodo, and it leads unto death. But there is a way that is right unto the lamb. 
And it is called the way of the Lamb. It's the way into the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the perfect Lamb. He's the Lamb that did it right. He came, and though he is God Almighty, he became a little Lamb. And he led the way for the mighty brigade of lambs. That we could demonstrate unto the highest heaven and the lowest hell the glory of our God. So going the way of the Lamb. The recent evidence that Christians are not supposed to be dodos. A protected life, fortress by the Most High, impervious to the harassment of darkness. Is it possible to have a protected life? Is it possible to be fortressed by the Most High? Is it possible to be impervious to the harassment of darkness? Will there be harassment? Will there be noise? Will there be temptation? Absolutely. But can that noise of the enemy stop the calling that is upon your life? If you have been placed here on earth, emblazoned by the very Spirit of God Himself... Can anything in this earth stop you? Haven't you ever heard that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world? Haven't you ever been told that you are more than conquerors? Haven't you ever been told that no weapon fashioned against you shall prosper? It will not happen. They cannot stop you. You know that this has been demonstrated? I'm going to go through quite a list. If you have your notes, no peeking. Now, there is no way that these names are just the only ones. These are just a short list, and this list could be so much more grand. Reese Howes, Hudson Taylor, William and Catherine Booth, David Wilkerson, Gladys Aylward, Amy Carmichael. In a time of war, war, in World War II, when the Germans were bombing uh, England, and they were coming against uh, trying to capture that great land. I mean, it's amazing that they didn't. The stories are extraordinary. But they were coming in with their bombing raids. And Reese Howes had all sorts of land. And he had all sorts of orphans on that land. All the Bible students were on that land. And God told him to pray. And to ask for protection. Around those lands, there were literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of damage in England. And not one square inch of the property that he prayed for was harmed. I mean, it's just extraordinary. David Wilkerson. You ever read the stories of him walking in amongst the gang members in New York City? I mean, the guy was untouchable. Though he was weak. I mean, anytime you watch the, the movie Crossing the Switchblade... Uh, what, Pat Boone? Not the most impressive character, you know, like, pfft. And so, I mean, you get a good mental picture of this. we got a little lamb here. And that's part of the power of what you witness. He walks in with innocent love to just say, you need the gospel. And though he's surrounded by gangs and who are even threatening to cut him into little pieces, he says, well, in every piece will cry out that I love you. I mean, his attitude was so lamb-like, and yet he had the face of a lion in the midst of it. Gladys Aylward, one of my favorite stories, is she is on her way to China. She's all by herself. She's this little teeny lady. I don't know what she was, around 4 foot 10, 4 foot 11, but she's really small. She's called the Little Woman. That's what her biography is called. And she's on her way to China. She's stuck in Siberia, I believe it was at the time. And she's in a hotel. She's very vulnerable. She's a little lamb, pathetically weak, slow, and dumb. And the owner of the hotel knows that there's a little woman in there, a young girl. And he comes strolling in, he has the key to her room, and opens up the door and sort of closes it behind him. And says, basically, lady, you're mine. And she says, you may not know my God, but there is a barrier between you and me. And if you take one step forward, or one step closer, you will find out. (laughs) And he shuddered and turned around and left. Strong and energetic for the things of God. Sharp and focused. Tenacious for the truth. 
C.T. Studd, John Knox, John Wesley, Edward Payson, John Praying Hyde. Honorable and above reproach in every thought, attitude, word, and deed. David Brainerd, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Reese Howes, Amy Carmichael, Leonard Ravenhill. The story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot had such an impact upon Leslie and me when we were young and in love. We had no examples, no pictures of what it must look like, just like many of us in this generation. We do not know what it can be. But then we see a little glimpse. You see, most of us, what's the enemy pointing at? He's pointing at the failures. What is God pointing at? Look what I can do. Look what I did do. Don't miss this in a time of trial like we are in. But remember the testimony of the saints. Remember the purity through which men and women have walked, untouched and unblemished, unwilling to be marked by the world. Constant unwavering in devotion. Leonard Ravenhill, John Prane Hyde, Richard Wormbrandt, Corey Tenboom. Richard Wormbrandt is being tortured for 10 straight years. For years after that, he couldn't even wear shoes. The bottom of his feet were so abused in torture. Couldn't even walk. And yet, here he is in prison. They just wanted to break him. Because if they could break him, they could showcase him to all the pastors in Romania and say, so here's your leader. He's changed his mind. You may want to change your mind too. And yet, this man was constant and unwavering. And he would not break. Well, little lambs break pretty easily. But when they are found in the shadow of their shepherd, they are unbreakable. Triumphant over physical weakness, made strong to be poured out. C.T. Studd, I think he was at the age of 52. You guys are in the process of reading the story, I think. But I think he was at the age of 52. He had been to interior China. He'd been to interior India. He had adopted every disease I think the body could possibly handle. His body was so broken down. He and his, body, his, his wife's bodies were just utterly devastated. It's like they were barely hanging on for life, even though they're 52. It spent everything for Jesus Christ to share the grandeur of the gospel with the heathen. David Livingston had returned from Africa, and he was giving word of the unreached heathen in interior Africa where no one had ever gone to share the gospel. And C.T. Stead, laying on his deathbed, hears this. He just sort of rouses himself. And he raises his hand to heaven, sort of like, here am I. Send, send me. Well, to be able to be sent to interior Africa, you have to pass a missions board uh, physical test, a physical examination. I mean, they're not going to send you if you're dying. And so he goes and gets a physical, fails it. And so he says, well, my missionary society that's sending me is God. And so he gets on a boat and goes off to Africa. The most improbable thing, you know that in interior Africa at the time it was said that if any white man were to go into interior Africa and not be familiar with the physical diseases there, they'll die, they could die in three days there. Well, now we have a man with a compromised immune system that is headed into interior Africa to do the impossible. He has no missionary support. He's going at the behest of God. He's following the living God. He shows up 20 years later. He had changed the entire history of modern missions. Who are these guys? Hudson Taylor, dying with the plague. His doctor, he was a medical student. He'd had an open wound on his finger, a paper cut the night before, and he was working on a cadaver of a a plague victim. And there's just one simple rule of thumb for the young medical students, just make sure you have no open wounds. And he'd forgotten about his paper cut. And so he contracts the plague, and his advisor, his medical uh, director, says, well, too bad. Why don't you just go home and prepare to die? 
at the time, people were just dying everywhere. I mean, death was very common, and so that's literally how cold and calculated the statement was. Well, you've contracted it. Just go home, prepare your things, and die. So he goes home, and he doesn't tell anyone because he didn't accept it. He knew that he had a calling upon his life. He was called to China. So there he is laying in his bed, and he whispers out to the Almighty and to anyone who wanted to listen in, I know I'm not dying. I know I will not die. I am called to China. And so there needs to be a movie made of this. I know that there's been things made of Hudson Taylor, but we need a Steve Rosen background score to this one. And he swings his feet out onto the cold floor, and stands up. And though his body was weak, he begins to walk. Hudson Taylor should never have gone on the mission field, and yet he died an old, old man on the mission field. Amy Carmichael was told that she cannot travel. She cannot go on great adventures. She's too sickly. And yet she died an old, old woman on the mission field. Abiding in love, joy, peace, and a sacred calm. John Wesley declared that he is happy always with an extreme happiness. The man was hated in his generation. And yet he had such a bubbling forth of joy and happiness that was unquenchable in his life. Jackie Pollinger, I gave the quote to the students this past week. She's living over in the walled city, a place that the police wouldn't even go to. Surrounded by drug addicts and prostitutes, the most dirty, just disgusting little part of the world. And she radiated with such a joy and such a peace. And her statement to the American church was, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. And when she says that all of us here in the American church go, I don't know. She makes it sound like having grace is better than having my own bed. Because it is. Richard Wormbrandt, Hudson Taylor. Unwavering in faith, persistent until the breaking of day. George Mueller declared unto his generation that he was going to prove that the God of the Bible still lived today. And that the simple avenue of faith would procure all the promises of God even today. And he did. The man raised thousands of orphans on faith alone. He never took his needs before any man. He took them always before the throne of grace and every single time God supplied. And his testimony after all of his lifetime is, we never went without. The classic story, and even though it might be the classic story, maybe you've all heard it, it's worth sharing again. The way that they approached it, they didn't have any food and they have a whole bunch of orphans. So what would they do? Well, God has never had us go without before, so he will not have us go without today. What would this voice say over here? Uh, You don't have any food, though. Yes, but God will supply. So let's set the table. And they set the table for all the orphans without any food. And what happens outside? But the dairy truck breaks down right in front of the orphanage. And the guy's like, great, it's all going to go bad. Looks around, sees an orphanage, goes, huh, okay. Comes up to the door, knocks, says, do you guys have any need of food? He goes, bring it right in here, just set it on the plates. Reese Howes, John Prane Hyde. John Hyde was asked by God, he's in India as a missionary, asked by God, do you believe that I could give, I could rescue one soul a day in and through you preaching the gospel? This is in India, where the hardness of heart and mind is so thick. And he says, I believe God. He says, well, take it by faith, and that's exactly what would happen, which would be 365 converts in one year, and it has to at least be one a day. 
And in that year, I don't remember what the number was, but it was over 365, and it was at least one a day. Every day he would go out, he'd know that there would be at least one person that would be saved. So the next year, God asked him a question. Will you believe that I could give you two? And that whole year, at least two a day. The next year, he says, three? The next year, four? This is in India. Think about your life. Have you even had one? One! This is one a day in some of the hardest territory on earth. It was one of my favorite stories. CT, I'm sorry, John Prane Hyde is walking along. It's late at night. He has a guide, and they stop in at a little house. And it's, you know, he has to have four uh, that day. And he hasn't had you know, any opportunity to share the gospel with anyone that entire day. So he knows when three people come out, oh, you know what? God's prepared them. And sure enough, they give their lives to Jesus Christ. And he says, but there needs to be one more. Is there anyone else here? They go, no, we're the only ones. Well, there must be someone else here. He goes, no, we're the only ones. I know there's someone else here. He goes, well, there's the guy back in the shack. Bring him in! Sure enough, four! A workman approved with the Holy Scriptures, Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozier, E.M. Bounds, Paris Reedhead. Endued with power, marked with the authority of Christ, Reese Howells, Jackie Pullinger, George Mueller, D.L. Moody. Remember, Reese Howells in Africa as a missionary, and the plague hit Africa. And Reese Howells took a stand, and he basically said, to demonstrate to all these pagan nations, to all the people around, that the children of God are different, and those that dwell in Goshen are different than those that dwell in Egypt. He took a stand and he said, the plague will not kill anyone inside the boundary line of this compound, of this ministry. And so all these other people are dying from the plague and what they would do when they realized that no one would be touched in this line, they would actually come. Witch doctors even came. They were all coming just to find refuge in Goshen, if you will, in the line, the one protected line. Can we make such a statement today in this earth? God's people are protected. We don't even know that, and we're God's people. In the shelter of the shadow of the Most High Shepherd, we will be preserved. We're willing to declare that. We're willing to prove it to the nations. Jackie Pollinger, George Mueller, D.O. Moody. Jackie Pollinger, the issue she had is all these, almost everyone in the walled city was a heroin addict, and they were skinny as a result. When you, I guess when you're addicted to heroin... You lose all your weight, and your bones and your your muscle just wastes away. And so anyone that came unto this room, it was just a little room in some kind of apartment complex, just a bedraggled little room, probably 120th the size of this this building. This is a little small room. She had about 20 people sleeping in it every night. But anyone that would come unto this lady and her God would become fat. And that was a statement that, how did you become fat? (laughs) In there. So all these people would just line up outside and every single one without having to come off of heroin, without the withdrawals, they came unto the God of this woman and he would set them free. Dear Lord Jesus, can we testify of such a relationship, such a reality in our day? Marked by the face of a lion, passionate for the glory of God. C.T. Studd. I mean, these are like... The who's who in manhood. C.T. Studd, Leonard Ravenhill, William Booth, 
standing in front of his audience, praise what he'd say. If, there, if he felt the hardness in any heart in the room, he'd be, pray. And all the audience is like, who's he talking to? There's a guy underneath the stage that was praying. And so William Booth would be like, pray. And he would literally preach until the audience broke. I should start doing that. And literally, there would be people in the back row that would be picked up by the power of the Spirit of God and thrown to the altar. Could you imagine? <laughs> Some guy goes flying over your head. You're like, okay, I'll get up on my own accord, okay? <laughs> Able to carry God's burdens, feel what God feels, and share in his Gethsemane. One made strong for others, able to carry the burdens of the weak and downtrodden. John praying Hyde died young. Why? His friend took him into the doctor. John Hyde's like, I don't need to go to the doctor. He had an intense pain in his chest. Took him into the doctor, and the doctor examined him and says, Son, I don't know what you're doing, but your heart has shifted from one side of your chest to the other. Well, John Praying Hyde knew what he was doing. He was praying. And this man would pray for weeks on end without eating, and he would cry most of the time. Absolute in agony, in Gethsemane. As it says of Jesus, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And that's the way John Hyde prayed for India and the lost in India. And this man died young. And when he was told by the doctor that he better stop doing what he's doing, John Hyde was the equivalent of saying, I'm dying with my boots on. I'm here on this earth for a reason. I don't care if I die in my young 40s. I'm here to see Jesus Christ glorified. And if that means I get crushed, Jesus died at the age of 33. If that means I die young, so be it. David Brainerd died at the age of 28. Edward Payson labored and wore out floorboards. Reese Howells would pray months on end, one stretch of his life for 11 hours a day. The givenness of these men to carry burdens that most of us in here, if we pray for five minutes, we have no idea what to pray after that. We're at a loss. That's a long time to pray. Have you ever been willing to allow God to take you into Gethsemane? You see, if you hang out with the shepherd, you go where he goes. And you're like, where are we going? He's like, today we're in Gethsemane, little lamb. Are we willing to go where he goes? Marked by audacity, boldness, courage, and daring. David Livingston, D.L. Moody, C.T. Studd, Amy Carmichael, Esteron Kim. Some of the most daring and bold people on the history of earth right there. Esteron Kim, young girl. In the time of uh, the Japanese uh, control and hold over, over South Korea, and everyone had to bow down to the sun god. And she knew Jesus Christ. Everyone was bowing. Everyone. What does this voice say? Everyone. And what does Esther and Kim do? Just a young girl. She stands up and turns her face heavenward when everyone else is on the floor. Everyone else is on the ground. Well, talk about standing out and making a statement. And she was tortured in prison for it. Her story is amazing. So will yours be. You see, though she defied the Japanese, though she defied the sun god, she honored her god. And when you honor that shepherd, and when you stand near him, even in a time of trial, he will be with you. I think I've told you guys this, but that one pastor that was going to be burned at the stake for refusing to not preach the gospel and to not stop meeting as a church, he was basically stripped from his congregation, and the congregation was told, and we will burn him for it. 
And if you guys keep meeting, you'll follow in his suit. So I would advise you to break this thing up. And so his congregation and him had one last moment. I'm sure the authorities were thinking, all right, he could talk some sense into it. Like, please, just break this up. I don't want more of us to die. Instead, what does he say? As, they, as the congregation comes, says, we don't know that we can follow. We feel weak. He says, to show you that the grace of God is with me when I'm being burned at the stake. When the ropes burn through, I will raise my hand amidst the flames. And when you see it, you will know that God is with us in our suffering. You know that most people would pass out if they were being burned at the stake, and they'd pass out pretty quickly. If you're still awake when ropes are being burned through, that's a long time. Could you imagine? Imagine the movie score behind it. As this congregation is watching this beloved pastor, as he stands with a serene countenance amidst the flames, and then snap, 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 the the ropes bust. And then amidst the flame, a hand rises. God is with his lambs. God is with us in even the darkest hour. He will not forsake us, but his grace will be sufficient. Able to rejoice in suffering and find pleasure in persecution. William and Catherine Booth were two of the most joyful people on earth and yet two of the most hated in their entire generation. All England specialized. If they ever heard that Salvation Army was coming through and marching down the town, they all got their rotten vegetables. In fact, they stored them up. It's like, oh, next time they come through, keep that around. I want to have that rotten tomato just to hit them square in the nose. And, I, and all the guys in here know, when you are throwing snowballs, where, what do you aim for? The nose. What do you think they aimed for when they were thrown at the Salvation Army? The nose. And yet, if they ever got hit, it was rejoicing. They did it for the joy set before him. They knew what they had in Jesus Christ. John Wesley is the famous story. I don't know. Some of these stories, you don't know if they're actually true, how much they've uh, grown up over time, but they're good stories. John Wesley on his horse, uh, he realizes as he's going down some cobblestone path in England, he realizes, wait a minute, no one's yelled at me or thrown anything at me for a couple days now. And so he begins to have this panic inside saying, God, have I gone wrong? Have I gone off track? And so he gets down on the cobblestone and falls down on his face and cries out to God, God, Show me, reveal to me if I'm going off course. I want to stay in your shadow. And then this guy is like gardening on the other side of the, uh, some wall. And he looks up, like, who what's that? And he sees John Wesley. Picks up a rock and throws it at him. And John Wesley shouts in triumph, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> like I said, I'm not exactly sure if the whole story is true, but it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> Keith Green Steve Camp, I don't know if you ever uh, remember the uh, musician back in the 90s named Steve Camp who pinned the 95 Theses to the, uh, to the Nashville door, challenging the Christian music industry to turn away from secularism and worldliness. And by the way, he was blackballed out of the Christian music industry at that time. But his, he was discipled by a man named Keith Green, who was the man that changed my life. And Keith Green, oh, Steve Camp was out sharing the gospel, and he was beaten up one day for sharing the gospel. And he came back all bruised and wounded and weepy uh, up to Keith Green. He's like, yeah, they beat me up. He goes, hey, hey. This is what Keith Green said. Hey, buck up, buddy. You should be rejoicing right now. That's the attitude of the believer. No matter what the enemy does to us, it gets turned into something good in our life. He means it for evil. God means it for good. No matter what it is, it's triumph. It's joy. You get thrown into a prison. You sing a song. That's not normal, by the way but it's normal in Christianity. 
the prayer of the greats that have gone before us. Here's the prayer of Paul. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, and that you may approve things that are excellent. Listen closely, because I made it big for you. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This is Paul's prayer. Do you think Paul's just sort of saying something just to sound poetic? Sincere, meaning unsullied, pure, spotless, without offense, without blemish. It's without spot, without wrinkle. Well, that's Paul's prayer, but that's impossible. Haven't you seen all the failure around us? Does Paul not know what he's praying? This is, he's being carried along by the Spirit of God to even pray it. This is God's design for us. This is the Word of God. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ into the glory and praise of God. The rope of three strands. In Ecclesiastes, it talks about a rope of three strands. I'm going to talk about a different sort of rope of three strands. But it's an interesting statement when it says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, neither is this one. This is a rope of three strands that binds us under the shepherd, that keeps us connected always, and will not easily be broken. In this case, it cannot be broken. So strand number one, God's word, the shepherd's voice promising salvation, truth, awakening grace. You see, in this rope of three strands, we start with the first rope, which is God's word. He has given us promise, and he cannot lie. And that promise comes unto your soul. You see, this is what binds you unto God. You have been awakened. By what? By God's word. Well, who is God's word? Jesus. Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the word of God. All righteousness. And now a grace has been sent unto your soul to woo you. To say, turn. You have a shepherd. You have one who can save you. You have one that can rescue you from your dire situation. So it starts with this. It's the shepherd's voice. What's the word of God? Promising salvation. Yeah, that's what Jesus did. Truth. That's the person of Jesus. It's an awakening grace. You see, we're saved by grace. But this is not the fullness of grace. This is a grace that is the first movement upon our soul to open our eyes. To say, I have a shepherd. How long have you been here? The whole while. I've never seen you before. You've been here the whole time? Uh Uh-huh. You see... Grace is awakening. The word of God is being preached to our soul and suddenly we see. Strand number two. What's our love in response? The action of the believer, which is known as faith and obedience. However, what do we need to even be ones who believe? We need an initial grace from God. The word of God must reach us. Our response in this as little lambs is merely to turn and to say, I don't want the wolves. I want the shepherd. Repent. Put off that old life of vulnerability, succumbing unto the flesh. Forsake that and repent of it and believe. Turn unto your shepherd. So we have two strands. We have the word of God and the promise of God woven together with us believing it. Now when we weave that third strand around, it is an unbreakable cord. And that third strand is God's word. Didn't I already say that? You see, God's word wraps you on the front side and it wraps you on the back side. And where are you? You're in the middle. Your faith is merely the the work of grace starting it. You believe and then he wraps you. But what is this third strand? It's God's word, the shepherd's ability to save. 
It's in power and grace. God's word promises and God's word is faithful. The one who calls us to do it, does it. The one who promises, performs. He is able to perform. He doesn't just give a promise and then we believe in it. But then he backs up his promise and that's called faithfulness. And that strand of three things is impossible to break. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So look at this list. You have grace on the top and the bottom. And it's truth. That's what this is. It's the word of God. Grace and truth. How did it come to us? Well, it came to us by Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Our responsibility in staying in the shadow of the shepherd. The counsel of the father's sheep. Now, let's imagine that I'm the father's sheep, or I have my little kids here, and they're, they're young sheep. They're young little lambs. Now, the father's sheep is just as vulnerable as the little lambs. He's just maybe a little wiser. He's been around the block a little. So what does he tell to a little lamb? Little one, I'm going to give it to you straight. Straight out of the word of God. You need the shepherd. And without the shepherd, you'll die. There's going to be some enticing things in this world, But I want you to fix your gaze on the shepherd. Don't watch where the wolves are going. Don't watch where the other sheep go. I want you to fix and train your gaze upon the shepherd. And where he goes, you go. This is just discipleship 101. You stay at the ankle of the shepherd. If you're in at the ankle, you're safe. Always. And if that shepherd moves one step, where do you go? You go right with him. If he goes this way, you go that way. If he goes this way, you go that way. If you stay in the shelter of the Most High, you're secure. Because little sheep, you're weak, slow, and dumb. I'm not saying that to try and offend you. I'm just giving you a clear picture of your vulnerability and your good meat. You see, if a lamb didn't taste good, he wouldn't have much to worry about. However, he tastes really good to the enemy. And so as a result, wolves, lions, bears are all after this little sheep. And you need to know that. The enemy gets great satisfaction by eating you for dinner. He does. For whatever reason, we're good meat. And so as a result, we must be watchful. But we have not been left as the dodo bird. We have not been left without a shepherd. We have a shepherd. And so the message of the gospel turns us unto our shepherd. He can save us. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the father sheep talking to us. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So who's our keeper? Jesus. However, there's two ways that you can hear this message, maybe three. But you could easily just say, oh, I'll be kept. Yeah, Jesus keeps the feet of his saints. Yeah, I'm eternally secure. I prayed a prayer once. That actually isn't how Christianity works. It's true that God keeps his saints, but the sheep must live in that shelter of the Most High. There is a relationship that you are supposed to have. And there is a need for you to take the grace that you've been given. One of the illustrations that Jesus is always giving, he's giving parables. And he says, look, I've given you a talent. I've given you a mina of gold. He's given us grace. Now with that grace, you invest it. How do we invest it? We invest it by focusing on our shepherd. You see, we're dumb, blind, slow, lame. We have all sorts of issues. And God gives us grace. And he says, with that grace... You stay. You keep yourself in the love of God. 
you obey. Because we can't even do that. But he gives us grace to do that. He says, now spend this wisely. I've given you myself to enable you to follow me. He's the one that helps us do it. But we still participate. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on as an action. And it doesn't just say, oh yeah, you prayed that prayer, you're fine now. It says, no, no, no. You put on the armor of God, didn't you? I didn't know I was supposed to. Ah, That's what you need to do. You need to live in the strength and the reality of my purchase. You need to obey and keep yourself in the love of God. You need to put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand, not fall. Stand. You need the armor. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. That sounds like a lot of work. We're not supposed to do any work. James says, faith without ergon is dead. Ergon means work. But it's not the work of salvation, us trying to drum up righteousness. It's the work of faith. And there's a big difference between that. We do the work of faith. And what is the work of faith? Well, I believe and I obey. I believe, I heed, and I say, if that's true, it's true. And sometimes, for many of us, that's holding on to the banister. And saying, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I know God has a solution. And God, I know that you said, come boldly into the throne of grace where I may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. And right now I'm at the banister. And there's a downward call in my life. And I feel such a propensity, such a weakness. And I admit that weakness. But I also confess your strength. And I know you have what I need right now. And I wait upon you. You will give it. And guess what? He always will. He always will give you that which you need to pass the test. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. The secret of the lambs. They know and are convinced of the fact that, oh, this is going to be fascinating. It's a secret of the lambs. And they know and are convinced of the fact that, dot, 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 Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. You've been called to something rather impossible. You have to stay in the shelter of the Most High. You have to to do this. You have to stay in his love. You have to do all this stuff. You can't wander this way. You have to stay close. You're like, I feel so weak. Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. That's your confidence. Your faith is not just that you've been called. Your faith is that he is able to do it. That's what you believe in. You can do it. You will do it. You must do it. You cannot lie. You will do it. I submit myself to you. Take this little lamb-like body that is so prone to wander and give me the grace that I need to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. And our final scripture. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's good stuff. There's going to be a lot of bait to take your eyes off of the facts. But the word of God is truth. He has promised and he cannot lie. He has made it clear that he keeps the feet of his saints. And he has also made it clear that he will grant you the grace that you need to live a life that otherwise would be impossible for a little lamb. But you are not called to be dodos. 
You were called to be his little lambs. And as his little lambs, you will prosper. You will eat regularly. You will be protected from the enemy. And those little hoofs of yours that are very prone to wandering and to stumbling will trample upon snakes and scorpions, dragons and the like. For you belong to the Almighty Shepherd. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.